Okay, welcome to the Hammer Factor, issue number 24. Exciting show lined up. This is kind of a follow-up to our Tyler Bratt show talking about disease in the jungle. We've got Dr. Rocco coming on the show a little later, but before I want to introduce our co-host here. My name is John Grace, and on the line we have Lewis Geltman, Policy Council Outdoor Alliance and North Fork Champion. Hey, Lewis, how's it going out there? Going great. Hey, man, I, uh, I got a promotion. I'm the policy director now. Isn't that exciting? Would you say it was because of the hammer factor that this happened or only partly because of the hammer factor? <laughs> I've so been what? trying to keep the hammer factor kind of under wraps at work, you know, <laughs> I think you're, I think you're making a mistake. Career wise. What, 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 <laughs> but, do they, what do they say about the hammer factor at work? Lewis? Somebody at uh, the office has, has to have heard it. No, for sure. I think people are stoked that we're getting people interested in public land stuff and just spreading the gospel. So what's your new job mean? So, what's, the, what's that? Do you have like minions that work for you? And... Not yet. I need some minions though. I think that would really move things along. <laughs> well, let me just tell you, we had a minion come in for the hammer factor and he didn't make it through the first day. So he didn't survive. Rig- the- I mean, in his defense, it's pretty rigorous. <laughs> yeah. There is a hazing. I know that's not politically correct anymore, but there is a hazing procedure. <laughs> That's really not pleasant at all. Yeah. So if you want to, if you would like to be the associate producer for the Hammer Factor, send us a message. We uh, <laughs> but you must send be... a picture. <laughs> send a picture of your back and cleaning your mop. <laughs> <laughs> but you must be warned: the first guy didn't make it through the first day. So <laughs> that's just that's just kind of how it is. Um, also on the horn, we have John Weld, whitewater legend and owner of Immersion Research. What's up, John? Uh, not much. Glad to be back. I'm amazed we're at 24. That's that's incredible. Man, and you know, this is like... That's more than 24 hours of us just running our mouths. You could listen to waste literally an entire day listening to... Say a day and a half, probably. Three of us Dude, blathering. I was, I was, we don't even talk about our YouTube channel, and I was looking on it on some of the stats on there the other day, and there was something like 382 days worth of people listening to this show like more than a year if you combine all the listeners and the time they've spent so that's a tr- tremendous drain on the gdp <laughs> health of our nation it makes me feel like we need to step up our game here a little bit i will say that yeah. i'd like to say i've done nothing in terms of fixing the website i i dude you, I, I you're, fired. Last you're, you're fired you're fired you're like you're I, like i looked at like it the other day it was all just like it's miscellaneous lines of code and like dead end links. <laughs> train wreck. I, I'm trying. It, you know, it's a little daunting. You know, it's it's very similar to the White House that Barack Obama left. Uh, <laughs> I don't even order again. It was gonna, yeah. So, let's see. Right. I did the introductions, and now we're on to Lewis. Let us Lewis. have it. What's going on, bud? Um, what's going on? Um, we're still getting people fired up on the, uh, this monument review process. The comment period for saving bears ears closed last week, but we're still, uh, 
kind of soliciting people to share stuff with Interior on basically the other 26 monuments that are under review right now. So I don't know, catch up with uh, American Whitewater or Outdoor Alliance and share comments with Interior on protecting these places if you haven't already. Um, that's a big deal. Um, I don't know, do you guys want to talk about the Paris stuff? It's not something that's we've done a ton of work on at Outdoor Alliance, but obviously it's in the news and kind of a sad day. I do want to talk about that, but let me, so there's, so does this review, does this, does this mean there's 26 national monuments that could be on the chopping block? Potentially more than that. So the way this executive order was set up was to say that it was Trump instructing interior to review every monument designated since 96 that is more than a hundred thousand acres becomes more than a hundred thousand acres with the addition or has an, the, the term is something like, like an inadequate public participation process, which could mean literally anything. So basically any national monument designated since 96 is potentially on the chopping block. Um, they interior then sent out a list of the monuments that they were specifically reviewing. And that was a list of 27, including bears ears. Um, Grand staircase Escalante in Utah is another really prominent one on the list that it seems like they're pretty primed to try to undercut in some fashion. Um, I know you can check out the rest of the list, but I don't know. Hanford reach up here. Uh, Crater Lakes, uh, or not Crater Lake, Cascade Siskiyou down in Southern Oregon is on the list. So, you know, if these are places that you have experience with or care about, you know, it makes your comments all that much more important. So if you, you know, go check these things out and, uh, you know, write a comment if you have a few minutes, it'd be really helpful. Is there a person, I mean, is there a person in the White House who is orchestrating this particular aspect of the administration or is it just it's I, and, yeah and i mean i guess in no i mean i guess <laughs> i don't know i mean i just clear donors i don't have a complete grasp on how things work in the, in the government in a detailed fashion but like i don't see trump doing this you know i don't see him you know researching monuments you know um like who like who and his staff would be the person orchestrating this kind of this kind of effort. So I think that the uh, you know the initial drive for this has come from you know some members of the Utah congressional delegation like Rob Bishop, uh, Orrin Hatch, Jason Chaffetz, and then they sort of have leaned in with the White House to say, you know, we're upset about these national monument designations in Utah, but obviously they're not upset enough to you know, do something in Congress about it, which they certainly could. They What they really want is for the Trump administration to sort of do their dirty work for them because they know that going after these monuments is politically not popular. Mm-hmm. They failed on someone in the White House. It's not, the org chart over there is, it's very hard to figure out right now because there are so many empty jobs. I mean, they're just- That's, that's kind of what I'm getting at. You know what I mean? Like I'm trying to figure yeah. out how the mechanism of this kind of thing works. Because it would seem like a, an administration that is so understaffed at this moment, who has time to deal with something like this, you know? Yeah, I mean, it goes to interior. So the 
principal person of responsibility there is Ryan Zinke, the interior secretary. Mm-hmm. And there are a few people working under him now who are people who, you know, used to work in interior under the Bush administration or came from, you know, like oil and gas or lobbyists basically who are, you know, part of the transition team over there. And it is very understaffed, but I think that that's, you know, those are the folks who are kind of driving this stuff. Before the show, we were talking about the Paris Agreement, also just sort of informally, and I, you know, as you mentioned, it's not really what you do, but the, you know, the the the, the top the, the idea I threw out, and this was completely playing devil's advocate, was uh, that while you know the administration or was saying as a nation we're not going to be involved, at the same time a bunch of states stepped in and started forming their own. <clears throat> You know, I don't know how a state could t- be involved with a, a you know, a, a treaty that's supposed to work with nations. Um, you know, is there, there seems to be a sentiment out there that there might be some, some strength to this. Individual states may be better at, at handling this issue than the, than the, than the federal government. Um, and you made a really, really interesting point about it, but go, why don't you go ahead and yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of sort of just structural disadvantages to the states being able to effectively do that. I mean, you know, sort of ongoing catastrophe of climate change. But, you know, I, mean, I think what we were talking about earlier is that, you know, anytime states try to adopt their own environmental standards or any sort of regulation, what you often get back from, you know, sort of U.S. Chamber of Commerce types is this, you know, argument that you're creating this patchwork of regulation where there's 50 different regulations in 50 different states and they would much prefer if the federal government established one uniform standard and made it easier for, you know, businesses to comply with it. But, you know, beyond that, I mean, I guess the fear is that by having different standards in every state, you're sort of spurring this like race to the bottom in terms of environmental protections or worker protections or whatever it might be where, big business is able to basically say, you know, we're going to locate in whichever state offers the least stringent environmental requirements, the lowest wages, the, you know, the least worker protections or whatever it might be. And I mean, obviously there's downsides to doing that. I mean, you're going to get, you know, lower quality workforce or whatever it might be when you're locating your business somewhere that has really bad quality of life because there's no environmental protections or whatever. But you know, particularly for something like climate change, it's, uh, you know, where the effects are not so localized as they would be for other kinds of pollution. You know, it would be easy to see states like Texas deciding that they're just going to do nothing. So if the, so the U.S. has decided, or the administration decided the U.S. is not going to participate in this agreement, could the next president reverse that, that plan if it's not Trump? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's... Hopefully, what'll happen, but yeah. <laughs> it's just another another four years down the road of, you know, it just seems like like the longer we wait to take serious action to address climate change, the more expensive it's going to become. And you know, I think twenty years ago we could have addressed this in a way that would have been, you know, economically beneficial. And I think that addressing it still would be in a lot of ways, but it's a uh, I don't know, just the further down the road you go, the more expensive it's going to be, and the more you're trying to 
you know, change the economy overnight instead of being able to do it over a reasonable period of time. It just seems like it's going to create a lot more disruptions the longer you wait. Well, I just, right. I just look at it and I'm like, and you, you seem beat down. Are you, you okay? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> man. Like following this stuff day to day is just soul crushing. Yeah, I mean, really. I mean, what's it's like you're an emergency room doctor. You're just seeing one horror story after another. Oh. I mean, what's the, uh, <laughs> what's the upside? You know. You're like, I, the thing about the Paris I, Agreement is just, it's just better to go down fighting. <laughs> no. The thing yeah. about the Paris Agreement to me was that was the one accord, the one thing that it seemed like the entire world came to the table on. I mean, how many issues does the entire world, 100 and how many countries, 90 or something? And you leave that, it's just such a weird position. I, I can't. Well, not Syria, Nicaragua. So you have you can't discount that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, but Nicaragua was not participating because they thought it didn't go far enough, right? It was just basically just Syria. It's like the <laughs> United States Republican Party and Syria are like the two people who, two entities who do not think climate change merits being addressed. Uh, well, we got to move on. Fair. Syria has other fish to fry. <laughs> <laughs> Syria has a few other a few other problems to take off the to do list before they start worrying about that. <laughs> Okay, we gotta oh, move on. Man. We gotta move on. Thanks for that, Lewis. What's that? Um, we gotta move on. Yeah. Um, you got something uplifting for us? Well, we just gotta go to <laughs> outdooralliance.org and get on the mailing list. Um, stay up to date, make your voice heard. Thanks for all the work. Policy administrator, what are you now, Lewis? What's your title? Uh, policy director. Policy director. Yeah. I come with a fat, fat pay raise. Not fat enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> Luckily, right. I'm making that sweet podcast money to, to supplement. <laughs> <laughs> all right, now we got a. How about our? Uh, we're gonna, we got a ladies' edition coming to the Hammer Factor. Lewis, do you know anything about this? I know John, you know a little bit because I've talked with your wife about it. I believe, yeah. but Lewis, have you heard of this? No. Yeah, so we're gonna have. Uh, Coming up, and it may be like a regular occurrence, maybe once a month or something, if we can get it together. But we got a, a full ladies panel, and they have a series of topics and issues. And we're—I'm just going to be sitting here running the board. It's going to be the best hammer factor ever. I'm going to take a well-needed vacation. <laughs> maybe go to the beach. <laughs> so that's exciting. Some reading that'll be really cool. So what I want to prime—the reason Who's I want to—that's cool. Let me. Uh, the reason is I want to. What I want to bring up is viewers send in your viewer mail in regards to this ladies takeover of the Hammer Factor, because right. when's this? Like it's going to be in this month or next month. It's going to be at the end of this month. End of this month. So you got yeah. a couple we weeks. Know. But uh, we got. Do we know who's doing it? We got a good panel. Kara's going to be on there. Um, Kara Weld's going to be on there. Uh, Maria, uh, Maria is on there. Um, there's a couple other people. I think it's going to be a four-person panel at this point. So she's written Nicole Lancaster, although I'm not sure if we heard back from her yet. People aren't going to want us back afterwards. <laughs> well, that could be. That's... I know, especially after your dire <laughs> predictions. Yeah. I mean, yeah, let me get a bandaid. Not really here. Audience here. <laughs> Can you put a positive spin on this. Jesus Christ. Um. Monday All right, should we morning. get into Dr. Rocco? Yeah, we should do that because I know he's on a tight schedule. Yeah. You know, and he's a, a doctor. 
first of all, I want to say that I think a lot of diseases are fake. Very legitimate point. Um, <laughs> you like it? You like that? Alright, let's see if he comes on. I'm dialing him as we speak. John, tell us a little bit about Dr. Rocco. Well, actually, he's a guy. <laughs> hey, it's Rocco. Hey. Hey. Rocco. Yeah. John Rock Weld here. Rocco, you're on uh, The I'm Hammer done. Factor with John Weld, Lewis Geltman, and John All Grace. Right. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So I was sort of giving you a very brief introduction because you're going to have to take over in a second. But Rocco lives down the street from, from me, and uh, and he, you know, when this whole amoeba thing came up um, with, the, with a girl who died uh, in Charlotte, um, I asked Rocco about it because, Rocco, you are, what's your title? Yeah, so I am an infectious disease pathologist and uh, work in a diagnostic microbiology lab that would diagnose infections such as amoebic encephalitis. Not that I've ever seen a real case, but, but yeah, that's what I do. So I asked him, I asked Rock about that. And I found it to be fascinating. I've been trying to get him on the show for, for a couple months now. And I think we've, we've, well, we finally made it happen. Um, yeah. but anyway, so Rocco, W, you work at WVU and what in my understanding of your job is that basically when someone gets sick, in West Virginia, and no one's quite sure what it is. It somehow winds its way to you, where you help figure out what's going wrong. Would that be yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I run the the hospital laboratory, and so I mean, as a pathologist, I basically, I mean, I don't actually see patients, but I don't. I mean, when people think of pathologists, they generally think of you know medical examiner, forensic autopsies, and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially, I specialize in infectious diseases, so I work with. Uh, infectious disease physicians who, yeah, who's, so a patient is, is referred here because they have a bizarre uh, tropical illness or some sort of, you know, fibrotal illness that nobody can figure out what's going on. Um, yeah, and so they, they refer them here, the ID docs see them, and then we consult in, in terms of, you know, what is the best uh, approach to making a laboratory diagnosis. What specimens do we need to collect? Um, you know, can we grow the organism or do we need to do antibody type testing, molecular type testing, that kind of thing? Right. So, you know, let's start with the amoeba because, uh, you know, that's kind of what got this whole thing started. And it was, it's kind of a, I mean, I don't know, it's, it's a certainly unusual situation, right? I mean, yeah. there was a girl yeah, who I mean, was, was she rafting or kayaking? Grace, do you know how this rafting. went down? She was a rafting. Visitor. She was rafting. On the Charlotte Whitewater Course, which is an artificial course in Charlotte, North Carolina, and it's a recirculating water course, and she got this amoeba. When I think of amoeba, I think of like second grade where we looked at the microscope and saw like a little blobule right. thing. Um, but had, I mean, and, and then Rock was, you know, when I brought it up to him, he's, he was basically, you were, I mean, you were surprised this had actually happened, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a very, I mean, it's a tragic case. Um, and I think it's a very uncommon scenario. Uh, I mean, generally the, the typical way somebody gets amoebic encephalitis is, you know, they're, they're swimming in a, in a stagnant pond somewhere in the South where it's, you know, really warm water temperatures where amoeba, amoeba will basically, um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll line the, uh, the bottom of a pond. And if you start stirring up the water, um, you can actually, you know, get it onto your nasal mucosa, and it it will invade directly into the brain. 
Um, and so that's, and it's, again, a very uncommon infection in the United States. But Is for somebody to... Go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, for somebody to have acquired it in a in a treated facility, in a you know a treated water facility, is just unheard of. Well, how did that happen then? I mean, what's the, like, what 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 went wrong? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's uh, obviously there was a problem with the with the water treatment. So, I mean, I read a little bit after we discussed it, um, and I guess the CDC investigation found that you know levels of amoeba higher than any measurement they'd ever made, um, you know, even in in natural habitats. Huh. So, you know, and they went into the discussion of what went wrong with the, it wasn't a chlorination system, I don't think. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know the whole to, to uh, my, story behind to the my filtration system. To my understanding, it was a UV um, filled filtration system. And essentially, there was some moss or something that was growing on, on the lights. And it, it, huh. it kind of quit working. Yeah. That's my understanding. I, but don't if, think, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting, though, because she's the only one, as far as I know, who came down with this infection. And, you know, every everybody who's rafting that day is potentially exposed. So that might also have something to do with uh, uh, the reason it's such a rare infection. You know, it may be not only related to the, the virulence of the organism, but potentially, uh, you know, host factors as well. So you're saying that uh, it could have been she could have been predisposed to this kind of a problem somehow. Uh well, potentially, because, I mean, obviously that, that didn't happen overnight, that, you know, failure of the water treatment system. So if the levels were really that high, then potentially everybody who had rafted and, uh, you know, swam for the preceding couple weeks, you know, was exposed to pretty high levels. Are these amoebas, like if you go to a stagnant pond in Louisiana and dive down to the bottom of the mud, are these amoebas everywhere? Or is it these, just the, the, these kind of things just rare to begin with? Uh, no, they they exist in nature. Um, so you, no, they're not rare. I mean, you could you could find them pretty easily, I would think. Yeah, and and uh, if you if you get one of these in your nose, are you certain to get sick, or is it even then well, it requires that, some other sort of? Yeah, I, I, that's a good question. I I don't know the answer, but I presumably not because again, I mean, I think a lot of people had direct mucosal exposure from this from yeah. this white water facility. So what happens when this thing gets inside of you? I mean, I, I know this is getting this is sort of getting gory, but yeah. So you have these. Uh, so your nasal mucosa, uh, kind of, uh, you know, abutting your sinuses. You have this thing called a cripporum plate, where your where all these vessels come through, and so it's sort of a, a chink in the armor, I guess. And so uh, these amoeba, for whatever reason, um, have the ability to transmigrate basically across your mucosa directly into the anterior part of your of your brain and i mean once they're there i mean anything any infection in the brain is uh is not good um and the problem oftentimes with this infection in particular is that nobody thinks of it you know and the the longer you know therapy is delayed the less likely is uh you know we we have a good outcome right so let me ask you as paddlers most of our most of our uh, viewership here are paddlers. What kind of uh, what kind of diseases are are there in the water? Like, what's more common? Like, amoebas are yeah, obviously like uncommon. What, yeah. What's more common? And I want to preface this by saying, John Grace, when he paddles in California, just drinks water right out of the river. Does not treat it. Would you, oh, do yeah? you recommend that? 
And would you say that it's, <laughs> well, that's something you could get away with in California? Before or we get into me, the country? before we get yeah. into me, let's hear some of the things that paddlers are going <laughs> to, I mean, what other kind of diseases well, have you seen with yeah. Well, I mean, I should preface all this by saying I've, I've seen very few of the infections that we'll probably talk about today uh, because in a hospital-based lab in, you know, in West Virginia, I see mostly you know, typical kind of infections. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about this when, when John asked me to come on. Um, there aren't a whole lot of infections directly re- that are re- related directly to water exposure, so immersing oneself in, in fresh or salt water. And I guess we're talking about fresh water primarily here. Um, but two that, um, so aside from amoeba, free living amoeba, like, um, um, can't even call their names now, acanth amoeba and naglaria are the two big ones. Um, aside from those, um, leptospira is a spirochete that, that can be acquired just not, not drinking the water, just being exposed to water. Um, and then the other one is schistosomiasis. So that's a, a helmet infection. So it's a, a fluke worm basically and both of those organisms can basically penetrate the skin um, certainly if you have you know open sores or even a even a scar or scab um, you know again you have a, a loss of that uh, barrier mechanism to prevent types of you know infections like this and so these organisms can migrate into the skin through the skin and then become a systemic sort of disseminated infection so how would you know if you if you had one of these things well um, that's a good question. So leptospira, um, you know, it, it can cause basically a variety of different uh, symptoms. Most patients, most folks who have leptospira probably don't even realize they have it. Maybe they have a short-lived febrile illness, but by and large, they, they you know, it's, it's self-limited. And so even without therapy, um, they, their immune system, you know, clears the infection. Um, a small subset of people, though, will go on to develop severe disease, and that could be, you know, bleeding from your lungs, uh, liver failure, kidney failure. And, that's uh, and those are the ones that typically come. To, yeah, that's not good. <laughs> those are the ones that typically would come to medical attention. Right. What did Tyler have? Was that that? It was lepto something. Leptospirosis. Yeah, leptospirosis. Yeah. Leptospira. So it's related to syphilis. It's related to the the spirochete that causes um, Lyme disease. And, you know, all three of those organisms cause all kinds of manifestations. I mean, it will differ from person to person. No, I think Teller had leishmaniasis. Is that some kind of leptospira? Is that? Mm -mm. That's a protozoan. Okay. Okay. That's what he had, leishmaniasis. And so the stuff that, that we're talking about, is this more common in in like warm water in water where there's a lot of you know contamination from from people around or yeah um well schistosomiasis and leptospira both uh would be acquired from water that's contaminated um from urine and or uh feces but um i mean leptospira would be rodent urine so it's not like, you know, it can be a pristine waterway and still, you know, be, harbor this organism. Um, I mean, leptospira, I think, is, is hugely underdiagnosed. I think we don't, uh, you know, like I said, really the only people who come to a medical attention, you know, those who have a really severe infection might get diagnosed. But I think in somebody who's returning from, um, you know, whitewater 
trips in Central and South America with a febrile illness that nobody can really uh, diagnose. I mean, I think leptospira should always be in the differential. What's a febrile illness? What's that mean? Um, so a uh, fever. I mean, if you have, I mean, every, I think probably everybody gets fevers um, that are hopefully short-lived, uh, you know, when, when they travel into developing countries. Mm-hmm. But um, if the fever doesn't go away, then, you know, it's an unspecified febrile illness. Um, it may or may not have other manifestations like skin rashes or diarrhea or, um, you know, respiratory problems. So let's let's bring it down to like actual day-to-day, you know, more everyday paddling. Um, last weekend, we did an overnight trip with the kids on the river. Um, you know, we're in kayaks or so trying to pack light. Uh, you know, this is the upper section of the Potomac, which has tons of agriculture and who else, you know, whatever, you know, remnant coal businesses around there and stuff. I mean, is it reasonable for us to prepare our dinner just by taking a pot down to the river, scooping the water up and boiling it, and making dinner with it? Is that going to take care of everything? Yes. Yeah. I mean, if, boi- if you're boiling the water, you, yeah. you should be fine. Now, you I mean, eating sterile feces, but you, but you'll be fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean. So, but the, the so yeah, go ahead. Well, so drinking the water brings up a, a, a different menu of, of pathogens, though. And by boiling the water, you would eliminate, you know, the risk for all of those waterborne, um, you know, ingested pathogens. Should you be worried about um, like agricultural chemicals in the water that don't, just don't get boiled out, or the parts per million be so small in that kind of circumstances? Yeah. I'm always worrying about. Or, yeah, I don't know. Couldn't answer that. So. If you're out paddling and, you know, you're playboating in the river, you know, you get tons of water up your nose and your mouth and you're spitting it out constantly. Um, what's going on there? I mean, what you think it brings up a whole other yeah. host of problems. Right. Yeah. So swallowing contaminated water can, um, I mean, that can bring on, I mean, there's many, many infections, bacterial, uh, protozoal, um, probably even some helmet infections, uh, worm infections. Uh, just by just by swallowing contaminated water. So Giardia, for instance, that's probably the the one of the right. more common uh, pathogens, you know, gastrointestinal pathogens acquired by ingesting contaminated water. And what's Giardia come from? Like we all know what it, we've all heard about it, but what is it? It comes yeah. from. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a protozoan. Um, it's not. It, I mean, it's more, so I guess it's more closely related to Leishmania than than Leptospira and that sort of thing, but. It's a flagellate. Um, uh, I don't know. It's a it's a protozoan. Yeah. So let me ask you on these. It seems like <clears throat> it seems like some people are a lot more susceptible to these kind of protozoa and whatnot from drinking it, and others are a little less likely. Is there are are there any proven trends on that, or a way to not be so susceptible to these kind of things? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think we don't know a whole lot about the epidemiology of, of many of these, um, you know, tropical infections, certainly, but even, you know, domestically, some infections that just aren't reported and aren't reportable. So, so if they're not tracked um, consistently from state to state, then we, we really don't know, you know, what the incidence is, what the prevalence is in a certain place, and then, you know, what are the actual risk factors and potentially protective uh, aspects from from person to person. So, I, I mean, 
you know, could speculate, but um, obviously people in you know younger age tend to do better. Um, people who aren't malnourished tend to do better. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just trying to you know come up with specific ways to protect yourself to you know bolster your immune system or something. I don't I don't know. I guess I'm curious how common these things really are. Like, you know, we were just talking and giving Grace a hard time about never treating water. And, you know, I've certainly gone back and forth with whether or not I just drink right out of the river sort of based on just kind of my feeling about how clean it is or what's upstream of where I am. I drink out of our local river here in in Washington every day. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like there are folks who you see kind of friends who are, just like unbelievably casual, will drink out of the river like pretty much anywhere and never have any problems. And then other people who yeah. are like unbelievably uh, strict about you know treating anything that they drink. And mm-hmm. I, I don't really see a huge difference. I guess I'm just curious how common you know things like Giardia really truly are. Like even the things yeah. that are not horrible and rare and life threatening. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a that's a good point. Um, I mean, Giardia is the most common parasitic, you know, gastrointestinal parasite we see in our lab. So it is, it is evident. I mean, it is prevalent in this state. Um, and I would, I would guess in the West as well. Um, but does that make it, it just because it's the most common doesn't necessarily make it common. Right. So, yeah, I, I mean, and, and again, because we don't really track the number of infections that occur the you know, number of Giardia cases that occur each year and, you know, where they were acquired, it's really hard to say, you know, how, how big is the risk? Mm. Interesting. Do you think it's possible to build up immunity to some of these things? Like maybe oh, yeah. it's a good idea to drink water out of the river all the time? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, 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 that's true. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I listened to the episode with, uh, with the guy with leishmaniasis, uh, this past weekend and, I think he was talking about the locals and how they're exposed to this parasite. Um, but I think there is something to being exposed. Um, I mean, it will, it will boost immunity and you will be less likely either to acquire the infection or either, you know, uh, to, uh, to develop severe infection down the road. So yeah, there may be something to that. I mean, I felt like we traveled to Mexico and, you know, I spent two or three months in Mexico kayaking, you know, every year for five or six years and I think after the first or second year, my incidence of getting sick on or off the water, you know, eating local food or whatever, dropped to about zero after the second year. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's just anecdotal or if there's some evidence behind my body somehow becoming more prepared to handle that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think probably the latter. I mean, um, there are you know, many, many things that, that kids in Mexico are exposed to. Uh, that the kids in the U.S. aren't exposed to, and so just inherently, you know, if yeah. if they make it to to adolescence and adulthood, um, you know, they don't die of dehydration because of severe diarrhea for the first five years of life, then uh, they will have they will have some immunity and and less likely to be uh, to get sick from the things that our kids would get sick sick by. Well, so me- to get back to go back to that uh, question earlier about the camping and stuff like that, two things um, we used to do is iodine tablets. Um, how effective is that for treating water? Um, I think not as effective as, as boiling. Um, I mean, it, I don't know that much about 
you know, water sanitation methods. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's better than nothing, I suppose. Right. But I think filtration is probably even better than iodine ther- uh, iodine treatment. Is it doesn't then, iodine doesn't kill cryptosporidium, does it? I think I've heard that. Right. So some of the yeah. So some of the things that um, that aren't metabolic metabolically active. Um, so things that form um, with equivalent to a spore, essentially, um, wouldn't be wouldn't be treated with with iodine. And then using. Yeah, go ahead. I've been using bleach to treat water lately, like household bleach, like two or three drops yeah. in a in a Gatorade bottle. Hmm. It's in that's we've had good results. I've not gotten sick from it. It was what we used the whole time yeah. we were down in Peru drinking some like pretty nasty river water. And uh Huh. I've never heard of that. Just straight I've up heard bleach. of it, but straight bleach. It's uh I mean that's how they treat water in uh in drinking water facilities, right? But then they have something to neutralize the chlorine afterwards, but it's the chlorine that actually kills whatever's mm. in the water. Hmm. Rocco, you sound very, very skeptical. <laughs> well, I mean, please. I, I, I mean, Rocco's like, this guy doesn't even treat his water. This guy's putting bleach yeah. in it. Who are these idiots? This is, this is, this is Louis Vuitton. It sounds like uh, Grace when he's talking about doing military press for his shoulder. <laughs> Well, I mean, bleach can be pretty caustic to to any cell. So yeah, it may kill <laughs> may kill protozoa, but it, it may also wreck your, uh, your GI epithelium. So, I mean, I guess uh, we'd always low heard enough of, concentration, but we'd always heard paddling in Newfoundland. You know, they had a ton of tannic acid in the water there. I mean, they were like a deep, deep brown that the tannic acid would kill most stuff in the water. What do you think? What's your gut feeling on that? Yeah, it's uh, there's also probably a lot. Uh, you know, many far fewer potential pathogens in, in water that cold relative yeah. to the water, you know, in, in, in Central America. But yeah, there's probably something to that. Let me ask you about uh, so, one. This is this yeah. is off the water topic. Um, so, what do you, is I've heard. What about Lyme's disease? Tell me a little bit about Lyme's disease. Was it created by the government? Um, so what year hmm. and how prolific is it it seems like it's like a a a disease on the rise you know well we had it yeah it is definitely is we had a conversation i I think not a couple couple weeks ago and i came up to him and said i'm gonna get lyme sooner or later and i'm gonna ask i was asking him for a lyme vaccine and there's one for dogs out there. And I was like, just give me that one because it can't, it's not going to hurt. And I'm going to get Lyme sooner or later. I just know it. Cause I mean, I spend half my time outdoors crawling through weeds, you know? Uh, and Rocco pointed out, he said, you wouldn't worry about it. Um, go ahead. Cause yeah. I thought that was, you know, so we there. went on a trip uh, two weeks ago and, uh, you know, I pulled ticks off, off me when I got home. They happen not to be the ticks that transmit uh, Lyme, but but even so, I mean, you're going to be exposed to them if you're if you're in the wilderness and you know in the northeast and and that and that territory is now expanding. That geographic distribution of of the tick vector is certainly expanding. So, you know, I've been in West Virginia for eight years. We had maybe you know a handful of cases every year, always in the over in the um, eastern Panhandle, and and it's basically encroached now. Um, so we're seeing Lyme in almost every county, and that's primarily because of the the, the tick factor. So the Ixodes scapularis, 
black-legged tick, or some people call it a deer tick. But yeah, it's it's definitely uh, expanding. Um, but no, I wouldn't worry about it because it's a completely treatable illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think there's a lot of hysteria around Lyme for for some reason. Um, I don't think it was invented by the government because there's a nice, I mean, paper. The original description was a a, a rheumatologist in Connecticut. So yeah, I thought it was on that <laughs> island where they were like uh, creating, you know, <laughs> weapons with certain diseases. I think <laughs> Did this doctor work for the CIA? I'm telling you. you know. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's a pediatrician. Well, I think uh, it was. The CIA. Well, it's going to get the, the veterinary vaccine and John Grace is going to get a tip hat and we'll all be set. <laughs> so you get limes, right? And you know, the way you said it is you'll see the bullseye, right? I mean... Uh, not always. Yeah. Uh, maybe half to two-thirds of cases should have should have a rash right that, yeah that bullseye rash but not always right and and then how do you i mean like so barring a rash how would you know that you have limes like how can you identify that and get treatment uh, and it's it's well, my understanding so, the longer you wait for treatment the worse it gets well i mean it it, it carries on its natural history and so it, it does disseminate and it may cause um yeah, I'm, I'm going to say this now and 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 sort of second guess my my original uh, premise and uh, that it's not that important. But uh, you get heart block, so it can actually uh, cause arrhythmias. Um, can go to your uh, to your to your brain and cause meningitis, but but typically it doesn't do those things. Um, so you'll have sort of just a non-specific again fe- fever, um, joint pain. Um, and if you have tick exposure and you, you know, and you're tested, um, you diagnose it and, and treat it. And these tests I mean, are, I, are accurate and easy to do. I mean, it's not like you're going to get a false positive or false negative 50% of the time. Uh, no, I mean, false negatives can occur. Um, so you miss it, you know, in somebody who has the disease, but generally not once the disease manifests. And so it's the patient who comes in, you know, after, you know, a weekend in the woods and says they were exposed to ticks and they want to be tested. Um, if they have Lyme, then it's not, you know, the antibody won't have developed by then. And so you would, that would, you know, early on an infection would be the, the highest risk of a false negative test. So uh, what, not, what's, not, yeah, go ahead. Not, well, I was just going to say not too many false positives. So if, if you're, if you have a positive result, then um, it may not, it may mean that you've had Lyme in the past, not that your current symptoms are, are due to Lyme, but, um, but it's at least suggestive that you've had Lyme in the past. So you, what, what's, what's this with people who get Lyme and nothing's working? I mean, they're chronically ill for years. What, <clears throat> what is, what's that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of that is not Lyme. And so there are, I mean, there are a lot of, uh, so the, the the testing is not great. So when we have a, uh, you know, for instance, you have a patient who has a nasty staph infection or a, a strep infection. I mean, we can grow that organism in the lab very easily and say, okay, this is what's causing your infection. Mm-hmm. For Lyme, it's a spirochete and, and it's not easy to grow. And so we basically, to diagnose it, you have to rely on the, on the production of uh, antibody. So the person's immune system revving up. And evidence of that immune system revving up is what, what tells us, okay, yes, the patient has Lyme now or at least has had it in the past. 
Um, but the problem is that depending on the lab test you use and, and the, the sort of the threshold that you use to, to gauge a positive result, um, a lot of people will, uh, will be diagnosed incorrectly with having Lyme disease mm-hmm. um, based on, yeah, so, so in that sense, it's kind of like a false positive. Um, but, but these are labs that don't really follow the strict guidelines for serologic testing. And then, you know, secondly, you have patients who, um, who really have no epidemiologic risk factors for, for having acquired Lyme, and yet, and their manifestation, their, their clinical symptoms are very vague. You know, I'm, I'm feeling tired, I'm weak, I have no energy, you know, my, all my joints hurt all the time. Um, if you test, you know, a thousand of those patients, a few of them are going to test positive for Lyme, mm-hmm. um, again, because it's not a, it's not a hundred percent specific test. And, you know, if there's no, if there's no possibility that the patient has Lyme, then it doesn't matter what the, what the test says, you, you, the patient doesn't have Lyme. Right. I mean, that kind of strikes me as the human condition. You're tired, your joints yeah. ache. <laughs> <laughs> that was me this morning. Let me ask you real quick here, because we, we, we have to kind of move on to some other, other things, doctor. But what is, what yep, is yep. the most common thing that an outdoor enthusiast, a paddler, someone who's hiking around rapids, someone who's you know, in the U.S., what what is what's the most what what are they? Is there anything? What's the most common thing they need to worry about? What's the most prevalent? Uh, I guess it would depend on what part of the country you're you're trouncing around in. Well, let's break it down. Let's start, uh, I mean, certainly. Let, let's start up in uh, kind of the West Virginia zone. Then we'll do southeast, and then we'll go out west. Yeah. Well, I mean, so. I think tick-borne, mosquito-borne illnesses probably are probably the m- most concerning for any out- avid outdoors person. Um, and so Lyme in New England and now, yeah, spreading down into even as, as far south as West Virginia uh, would certainly be um, a concern. Um, Ehrlichia and um, uh, anaplasma are two rickettsial-like diseases that are transmitted also by ticks although different ticks, and, uh, and Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. So that, that can be deadly, and certainly um, you know, down in North Carolina, Tennessee, uh, would be a, uh, a potential concern. Now, again, none of these, none of these are hugely prevalent, so you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something to be concerned about, but the risk, I think, is still overall quite low. Out west, I'm not so not so familiar with. Um, I don't think so. Lyme, for instance, is much less prevalent out there than it is in in you know the upper Midwest and and New England, but it does occur on occasion. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, I, I don't know of of anything that you know nothing's nothing comes to mind as being okay. You have to watch out for that. Grace, why are you spreading fear? Right well, on. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm just, you know, knock on wood, like fully want to knock on wood. I'm not spreading fear because, I mean, I've had ticks all over me, all over South America and different places. I don't treat my water. I grew up in the most polluted county in the most polluted state in the U.S. You know, like I'm making it fine. I just wonder, you know, I just, I just wonder what you should be worried about. 
So maybe just to wrap it up here, because I know this is something I've been, I'm interested in as well, is a lot of paddlers travel, especially pa- travel to Latin America. What would be some just general hygiene do's and don'ts for traveling uh, south? Um, you know, just in terms of, you know, not only just being on the river, but eating and drinking and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, I certainly I would recommend boiling water if you're, if you're not filtering it um but boiling is probably even better than filtering it and hmm. and arguably easier um do you how long do you have to boil uh, water infective. Infective? like like a minute i mean is boiling just yeah i mean tops a minute's yeah plenty yeah okay uh most things are going to be killed almost i mean at, at temperatures that high instantaneously but a minute certainly is safe okay um yeah in terms of i mean foodborne disease you know whether you're you know, in the in the wilderness or in a, a town, and it's something to be concerned about. And you you obviously want to avoid sketchy um, sketchy meals, and you want to make sure that everything's cooked. Um, yeah, and then and then insecticide, I guess, is is another uh, you know important like point. Like a DEET or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, is, is I mean, DEET uh, really the best mosquitoes. thing that you can do. As far as I know, John, I don't, I mean, uh, yeah, I, th- I think so. And you mentioned, I know personally, you've mentioned to me, you wouldn't eat, uh, shellfish or fish typically on a, on a trip like that. Yeah. So you can get a lot of stuff from, from fish and shellfish. Um, particularly when it's, when it's not cooked. Um, but I mean, it depends on where you are because your risk of, I mean, again, those the things that are transmitted by those uh, those foods are probably much less common than than typhoid is, and you know, and shigella, and right. those are going to be transmitted by the chef, no matter what he or she's cooking. Right. And 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 again, there's, you can't really you can't really avoid that kind of thing. You know, yeah. it's not not something you can protect yourself against unless you bring your all your own food. And would you take Cipro as a, I know some people take Cipro, which is a antibiotic, it's just prophylactically before they go overseas. Is, do you think that's overkill? I, I would take malaria prophylaxis, you know, if I were going to a malaria endemic area, but like not, what? not just in, um, like, like what area? No, no. What would, would you like take? What, is, yeah, Cause I remember like larium is, is hard to, or it's, has a kind of a controversial history. We've taken it before. Um, I'm not, what would you, what would you recommend as a, a malaria? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I'd I'd go to the travel clinic and and take what they gave me. I don't know. I mean, some people use a tetracycline based prophylaxis. Um, some do. people use quinine based. Yeah, but I would take something. Uh, I mean, I think going to a travel clinic ahead of time. Uh, have you guys been vaccinated for stuff? I've been vaccinated like, for pretty, uh, much, pretty much everything at some point or another. Yeah. Yeah, we spend time I mean, I, I, in weird places. I think uh, I mean yellow fever vaccine, for instance, probably probably protects to some extent. I mean, not completely protective, but would protect to some extent against uh, dengue and uh, and some of the other flaviviruses. So, I mean, I think going to a travel clinic ahead of time is probably worthwhile advice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I, I would not get back to your question. Would not just indiscriminately take uh, ciprofloxacin or really yeah. any antibiotic. Um, because you can actually do more more damage than 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 actual benefit. Right. So I just wrecking your intestinal flora and, and that sort of thing. 
would you bring those with you? And if so, if you got really sick, take it then, or would you just not yeah. do that at all? Like, how would you? How well, would that's you not a bad that? idea. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, it depends on how how readily accessible antimicro, you know, antibiotics would be wherever you're going to end up. Um, if you're out in the middle of nowhere and get a script for Cipro, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, you, yeah, you take Cipro have... with you. Would that be the one you take? And then, if you get, if you just suddenly get horribly ill and for days on end, you start taking Cipro. Would that be kind of the how you do that? Yeah, I mean, that's a shot in the dark, but um, yeah, that's that's what you would do. And uh, Cipro would help mostly against the bacterial agents that cause diarrhea. So. Obviously, it's not going to help with malaria or leishmaniasis or, or things, um, you know, even, even the rickettsial illnesses, the tick-borne and mosquito-borne diseases wouldn't be affected by Cipro. Right. Well, I may just stay inside. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, on, on that note, doctor, before we, before we let you get back to your day, give us a horror story. Yeah, <laughs> this is the clickbait part of the episode. Yeah, give, it, give us say. just like, yeah. like, oh my God, I've never seen somebody so ate up with Lyme's disease, leishmaniasis, hepatitis A, some Chagas. What's well, you, I mean, you guys saw the picture of, uh, of Tyler. Uh, John showed me this thing on his phone. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, that was pretty horrendous. But uh, I mean, those can get... The, those can get even uh, more disfiguring. I mean, he, he's lucky. I think it, it only got his lip and, uh, um, but I mean, if, it, if that gets into the nasal cavity, uh, and, and the sinuses, it basically, I mean, your, your whole front of your face can cave in. It, it's terrible. Um, I've never actually seen a, a case of that. Huh. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I Nothing comes to mind. Sorry, man. We can just always oh, reference something. Tyler. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was something else. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, sure thing. Much. Thanks for having yeah, me, guys. Thanks very much. <laughs> yep. Take care. Well, that was pretty interesting. Man, that was great. Crazy stuff. I talked to him for hours about this stuff. You know, it's not. I'm not like a hypochondriac, but it is just interesting. But... <laughs> he is... He, you know the thing is, you know he sees some weird he sees some weird stuff coming through West Virginia. People go overseas and they come back, and you get these doctors in West Virginia who are like, I don't know what the heck's going on here, you know. So <laughs> I don't know, man. I just I it's kind of like you know, like if you're around a bunch of bees and you don't want to get stung, you just act like they're not there. That's my technique. Right. Yeah, I feel like we got confirmation that it's okay to just drink out of the river. That's that's what I heard. That's what I got. Yeah. <laughs> If you make it past five years old, you're good to go, you know, so. I mean, I feel like, I, I do feel like if it's like the Yawk River, whatever's in the Yawk River, it's in me. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that way about the Potomac. Yeah, I feel you know, like I'm you like know, uh, 25% Yawk water. With that know? Amoeba story, I just kept thinking about when we were when we were campers at Valley Mill and we would go do the hiking river swim and we would like walk up and there was this pond. Oh, no. Here we go again. It was just like, you know, just this stagnant pond with like this thick layer of green algae on the top to the point that it looked like you could walk on it. Yep. I know where you're going with this. Every time you'd go by, Andy Bridge would be like, I got a dollar for you if you just like submerge your entire head in that pond. Right. Just, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, dang, you got an amoeba. Then we gotta do a, We got. I, I don't know anything about you guys' Valley Mill days, but we need to do just a show where you guys just talk about Valley Mill days. 
It was like basically where you took sort of sheltered white middle class kids from suburbia Maryland and you put them into this savage uh, boot camp of hardcore <laughs> weird 18th century whaling ship ethics. I, I think, that's, right? I think that's, it was. I think that's what our intern thought about I, the hammer am factor. I, am, I, am, I encapt- <laughs> am I capturing this correctly? There's some of that for sure. I was thinking there's some like Lord of the Flies to it as well, probably. Yeah, and it was definitely random. <laughs> like, who could do? Like, we we made a kid eat spaghetti until he threw up, and made him eat it again. <laughs> okay. And okay. like even the little kids, we'd have a sand baby contest, like like the four and five year olds, where we make them get soaking wet and cover themselves with sand and stick it in their mouths. We called it a sugar baby. <laughs> was, okay, okay, okay. We got we're running we're running low yeah. on time here. We're already at fifty something minutes. So let's uh, right. let's save the multi day stuff for next week, John. Okay, I like that, but that's that's like a twenty minute conversation, you know. All right, yeah, so, yeah, I'm with you. Um, All right, let's talk about the new Nirvana Creek boat from Jackson Kayaks. Um, Lewis, you've had some experience with this boat, and you were referencing it earlier on the show. Tell me what you were saying again. Yeah, let's hear what you were saying again, real quick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why do you guys always try to bait me into it? <laughs> <laughs> I, that's a really interesting point earlier before we got on the air. What, what was that again? I can't. Why was it you said that Jackson Kayak sucked? <laughs> so let, um, let me just start. You can think. Of, you can gather your thoughts here, Lewis. So this is a nine-foot racing creek boat um, from Jackson Kayaks. I believe it would be there. Right. It's it's a Me Too Nine R. Everybody be safe in saying that. Yeah, I believe this is their answer to the Nine R. So, um, but I've never paddled it or been around it. Or In their defense, it. you could say that many of the Piranha Creek boats have been Me Too rock stars or yeah. re- Piranha Playboats, rather. Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. All, All right. right. There's nothing new under the sun. So, Lewis, so. tell us about the boat. You've seen it, you've watched the boys paddle I, it. Yeah, I've seen it. I haven't paddled it. I think it looks uh, really, really ugly. <laughs> it sort of <laughs> looks like a. It's got a little bit of that elf shoe look, and the stern looks really big and weird to me. But uh, the boys seem very stoked on it, possibly in contrast to other Jackson designs. Just <laughs> because they're getting paid by Jackson, would you say? Or, um, man, I feel like it's like if you just—not that eat. that's bad, but I you have to point out if you're getting paid by Jackson, you're probably more likely to like the boat. Well, I mean, if you've been you know if you've been eating bread and water for for years and suddenly somebody gives you like a Big Mac or something. That Big Mac probably seems like, like high cuisine, you know? Uh, What bread (laughs) and water were they eating before? They're like in a Noah Jetty. (laughs) Well, like the sand or the karma. (laughs) Well, I'm going to find one. I'm going to get in and paddle it and give you my two cents on it. I I saw the, uh, what's that, what's that, what's the new, uh, Waka boat, uh, the gangster. Is that what it is? Yeah. I saw one on the river the other day. It's quite large. I mean, it was. It looked like a ninety-plus gallon boat to me. Is that what this 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 uh, this Nirvana is? I mean, it looks big from the I pictures. Don't I don't. I don't know. I just. I, I just saw I'm just, a thing. I didn't even know much about it during the design phase or anything. So. My problem is that I'm so particular about 
kayak outfitting that if I haven't outfitted a boat for myself, I know that it's just going to annoy me to paddle it. And so it just makes me like unbelievably lazy about trying new boat designs. Which is I just, weird. I know I'm going to have a bad time when I'm paddling a boat that's like, you know, like that is, that is so on Valley Mill though. You know what I mean? Because the Valley Mill way is for you to sit in an unoutfitted <laughs> boat, basically just sitting on the, on the hull with your legs think, straight out in front of you. I think slalom racing, slalom racing took that out of me. But you're right. Huh. So we got nothing on the new boat. I'll fig- I'll, <laughs> I'll spend some time in it and see if we can come back with. We something. can do what we always do, which is just speculate endlessly on boats that we haven't paddled <laughs> and just say that they look like they suck. <laughs> You're right. We could pretend like we know something was saying they look like they suck. That's the easiest way to play that off. <laughs> <clears throat> we can only say that all these boats suck because the hammer factor sucks, and we know that it sucks. So we can just we feel good about just. They suck. Sucking. Yeah. Sucking in general. <laughs> Just a gigantic suck sucky, fest. Sucky boat. <laughs> um, all right. Rants and raves, boys. We're at an hour in. We've got to uh, we've got to get on the rants and raves. Lewis, you're up. I'm going to give you a two-for-one rant rave this week. All right. I went to California last weekend for Memorial Day. Um, we went down there intending to run Devil's Canyon on the Middle Feather. And because the boys were all fired up, we decided to reduce our three days on the middle feather to a two day and go do the South branch. And the rant portion of this is that I just like, I do not like low water, low volume kayaking, like falling off 75 CFS 20 footers has zero appeal to me. And I know that I'm in the minority and I know I need to get over my crusty attitude about it, but low volume. Do it, on, do, it's, do it on a sub board. That would make dude. it more interesting. <laughs> like tobogganing. Yeah, maybe I should. Maybe the guy on, on South Silver on the sub has the right idea. But like South Silver is another one I put in this category that like everybody loves South Silver. And like, I think I would rather sit in the parking lot and like read the New Yorker than South Silver. <laughs> <laughs> But the rave portion is after we got done with this suffer fest on South Branch, we went and did the Middle Feather, which I think is, I would put that in my top five all-time favorite multi-base. It is like the most underappreciated run in California in my book. We had really good water, like a little bit higher than I'd ever been in there before, like maybe 31 or 3,200. Oh, that's big. And it was just, just like just 30 miles of like class five minus. Just like mostly read and run, a lot of rapids where one person would scout, a lot we were kind of just like peering over from the top, and you're like, this is going to be scary, but I can see that there's a pool down there at the bottom somewhere, it's going to work out. Just like, so beautiful, awesome camping, nobody out there, like one of the best runs in California. One portage in 30 miles, just so much white water in there. In your defense, Lewis, I think we all end up with your opinion of good white water versus bad white water i think that's what happens when you get old is like the novelty of just running waterfalls kind of wears off if they're not complicated or hard just falling off things and then you just you're still soaked on running rapids but this is the devil's canyon section in the middle feather like above baldrock all-time classic and like yeah mr weld Okay, I got a, I got a rant. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. I have a rave. I have a rave. You ready? It is the old school MSR XGK stove, XGK2 specifically, uh-huh. the multi fuel stove. 
talking about the kind that has the four little pins that swing out and you put your pot on top of it, right? You're losing that, credibility. I have, dude, I have had that stove. Okay, just shut up. I've had that stove <laughs> since like probably the 80s and it has been all over the world. I mean, it has it has been used hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, hundreds of times for sure. Uh, in every conceivable combination of misery that you could imagine. And for this trip we did last weekend, I busted that thing out. It's been sitting with fuel in it for probably two years, right? Fired right up. And it just brought tears to my eyes. How simple a thing <laughs> is to strip down, fix, get it back up and running. There's no nonsense. You can burn diesel. You can burn kerosene. You can burn gas. You can burn stove fuel. It burns anything. Do you think the Whisper Light International is as good as those original ones? Probably, but this is the one that I have and the one yeah. that I just feel so connected with. You know what I mean? That's uh, a classic it, piece of gear. It does. And, you know, it's just like every gas this has two different kinds of gaskets on it. You know what I mean? So uh, two different sizes. They're easy to replace. It comes with a little kit. You can you can strip the thing down about five minutes and rebuild everything, you know? Um, it, it's just not – it's the opposite of junky throwaway gear that's so common nowadays, you know? Those are awesome, man. It's like – I think that those canister stoves that everybody uses now are like the like K cups of yeah, and it just, world. It's like you're just producing waste endlessly. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's definitely my takeaway from those things. So it takes forever to boil water. I know it's loud. It sounds like a jet taking off, but I don't care. It's it's American craftsmanship at its best, I would say. There you go. For the outdoor community. All right, Grace, what do you got? I and how was work. I losing credit on that? <laughs> what's the core than an old school msr stove well i didn't know that's where you were going with it so i'm gonna go ahead and let right. you slide on this one but all right um i'm gonna Stop. rave nope. i'm nope. gonna rave on, and i'll on. also tell you another benefit of those stoves is you're never gonna know when you need some of that fuel for something else like you run out of gas that's right or, or i started a fire i poured some gas on the fire because it was <laughs> pouring rain at the time we were camping and that's, guess what it was put soaking wet in the light with gas on it <laughs> so don't take my eyebrows off too but it's gonna go so oh, it doesn't weld boats as well as a jet boil bit <laughs> <laughs> so i'm gonna rave about 14 foot long stand-up paddle boards and stand-up paddle boarding <sighs> Oh, no. Yeah, well, just... really was credibility with that stove one. Yeah. <laughs> let me just All right, well, you. thanks, guys. I'm going to find out. I'll let me just you let me... next week. Hey, come on. Bear with me for one second because I was thinking about you guys while I was paddling. So I'm dealing with this rib thing, you know, and it's doing better. I'm going to the green tomorrow. So I'll have some ki actual kayaking stories, which I haven't had in two months and whatever. But anyway, I'm took this board out. I've taken it out two times. I borrowed it from Chris Grotman's. He had this board. And I was like, oh, we're going to try that out. So he let me borrow it. And it felt good. Rib was feeling good, you know, whatever. But have you guys ever, this is what I noticed, is I, have you guys ever, when you're just paddling attainments or paddling for any period of time, more than like an hour, that you just feel like you're just grinding your your vertebrae and your discs and your lower back to just nothing. You're just pulverizing them. No. No. Well, anyway, I do. Maybe it's back to me. <laughs> but anyway, on this, on this paddleboard, I didn't get that grinding, but I was still getting like the paddling and I felt like I was like using my paddling muscles and. You should try, you should try an elliptical. <laughs> 
I'm anyway, just saying. I'm going to rave about... That could be a million-dollar about... idea. You could do, like, the Nordic track of SUP. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Right? I'm, I'm just going to rave about my experience on that 14-foot-long paddleboard, gliding along at, like, seven or eight miles an hour. I felt like Listen, the man. So. Let's edit this out and just go ahead and rave about the uh, brap, uh, party brap. I, I'll rave about that next week because I'm getting ready to take it out tomorrow. So I, t- I paddled it yesterday. I loved it as much as the day I got it. It's the, <laughs> it is the best book. It is so fun. It's all I use anymore. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Hammer Factor and send us some viewer mail about what you want our ladies panel to cover. I'm really looking forward to producing that one. So Should we, should we call them the gals or is that Girls, call them ladies. You can call them whatever you want. Ladies, yeah. <laughs> and you All guys, right. are, and just like you guys are gentlemen. So, thank you. All right, okay. everybody. Hammer Factor, we're out. <laughs>